spoke about desire yesterday in different ways and how we can track desire, you know, see along with what we're saying, explore desire, make room for desire, see through desire. And most fundamentally, uh, cultivate a mind of non-clinging with desire, non-clinging around idea whether the desire should be here or not, so that we're not so fixated upon, so tight around, so pulled and pushed by the, this very human experience of desire. And today, using the same, um, same sense, really, the same interest in what we get tight around and how we can be less tight around, where we create friction with and where we can be free in the midst of experience. And to look at um, views, opinions and beliefs. You may remember at the beginning yesterday I spoke about these different particular places that, um, that fixation lands. Right? What I want in the world of desire, and then what I think in the world of views. And there's, you know, there's a lot of material there in what I think, because I tend to think a lot. And what I think is so reinforced over decades that it often doesn't present as a view. It just pre it presents as as if it's objective, as if it's a truth in some way. And maybe some of you have heard me speak at some length about in, the, in different contexts, of different layerings, of different conditioning factors of views. So I don't want to speak too much about that part, but just to kind of give some perspective of those conditioning factors, the cultural conditioning of our views. Right? We grow up with a worldview, right? some kind of belief about the, the way life is, some kind of belief or view about you know, the origin of life, for example. A lot of belief systems try to kind of um, give us some sense, provide some sense of being able to orientate in terms of, you know, the origin of life and the afterlife. Rather interesting, you know, and nothing we can do about the origin of life nor the afterlife. But religions, which theory designed to <laughs> help us live well, seem to obsess a lot about what happened in the beginning and what's going to happen at the end. And um, so we, we, you know, we all have some religious conditioning, even if you grew up in a completely atheist or materialist or scientific um, environment, even if you weren't explicitly influenced, if you, if you didn't go to church or synagogue or temple or Sunday school or whatever it might be. It's, it's very much in our culture, 
Right? We've, we've, most of us probably got an inherited, uh, a, a worldview that it's an inherited mix, a mix of Judeo-Christian origin mythology plus scientific materialist mythology, right? Big Bang. Science conforms to all the criteria of a religion. Right? Tells us an origin story. Tells us how life operates, etc. It doesn't sound like a religion, but then that's what religions do. They talk. They call all the others religions, and they call themselves the truth. Right? Yeah. Yeah. No religion says, "Oh well, we're just one belief system among many." Actually, some do. The Hindus are very good at that. But generally, we say, no, we've got, this is our, you know, the, the way and the truth and the light. Right? And then the other lot are the, you know, the, these funny fish that have some you know, pagan, some wrong, some superstitious, some primitive beliefs. And that's the kind of views we come up with right, to make the others wrong and ourselves right. And so science does the same thing, basically. It says, oh, there was a big bang and you know, here we are. There's some steps in between. But, uh, and it, you know, it's interesting that even the Big Bang is largely completely discredited and abandoned as a theory these days among astrophysicists. But we don't know what else to come up with, so we keep referring to it, because otherwise what? Otherwise we are confronted by the complete mysteriousness of being here. You know? Whether on the personal scale or the cosmic scale, we don't know how this happened. I don't know how come I'm here. I don't know how come this is here. I, c I can't make sense of it. I, c I can't make sense of experience, most fundamentally. I saw a great quote the other day. It was, what was it said? I can't remember who said it, but it was... Um, If, the hu if, if human experience was so simple we could understand it, then we'd be so simple that we couldn't. <laughs> and, you know, maybe you've had that experience, right? You, you, like you look out at the cosmos, you look at the starry sky, and you can't make sense of infinity just boggles the mind. So Dharma practice would say, please, let your mind be boggled. Just, you know, boggle. Wow. Allow in awe, wonder, mystery, non-conceptual um, <laughs> non-conceptual uh, you know, just allowing of life's mystery and vastness etc but you know at least initially that kind of not knowing is uncomfortable for us we're conditioned to to like certainty we spoke about that the other day in terms of you know, life decisions and stuff we expect certainty, we, we look for certainty, and so we come up with some world views that give us some seeming certainty, except they're just views. 
oh, there was a big bang. And then we say, oh, okay, yeah, that's how, all right then. Or we say, you know, God created the world in seven days. And we say, oh, yeah, okay. Or Buddhist cosmology. Someone says to the Buddha, how did how's the world begin? The Buddha says, oh, please, don't go there. That's an interesting religious view. Is don't concern yourself. These are the, he got, there's the, these things called the imponderables in Buddhism. Some of the, one of the imponderables is what's the origin of the universe? It's imponderable. Okay, interesting. Do not he says you know they refuse to to um, engage in metaphysical speculation. I, uh, to me, that's very evocative, that to invite that invitation of mystery, rather than a settling for certainty. So that's just one layer of you know, views, right? The kind of the biggest picture, the world view, whether the the views we might have about our origin or the views we might have about the you know our place in life or the views we might have about our end of life what happens to us after life. And a lot of views rush in to, to try to give some certainty, some meaning, some comfort, etc. And maybe, you know, it's, maybe we find some comfort, maybe we find something supportive, maybe we find something useful in an origin view or in an afterlife view. I think that's an interesting criteria, actually. I'll maybe explore that a little as we go on. Usefulness is an interesting barometer of a view rather than truthfulness. A lot of views are very, uh, they kind of break down when we try to measure them against whether they're true or not. But whether they're useful or not. Maybe limitedly useful, but maybe a sense of where I come from or where life comes from and a sense of what's going to happen to me after I die without trying to verify the truthfulness of that. You can't verify the truth of what's going to happen after you die. But oh, maybe you have a view about what's going to happen that you find useful. Useful because it's motivating in a certain way. Useful because it's uh, kind of soothing in a certain kind of way. And then of course all the other the sort of outer views, views of life political views, views of moral views. And then the other layers of conditioning, family layers of conditioning, and the way we learned to look at life, what we kind of picked up, either explicitly from our parents and our education and our peers, and, and etc. Or the way we pick, what we picked up implicitly, you know, and pick up just in our environment. I, you know, I did in my own practice to, to do a lot of unpicking of things I am in, picked up just implicitly from my family. And things I picked up from the way my father would shout at the TV about things. And I, it was kind of, I, as I started to unpick it, I re could remember the strangeness of it, right? At first, it's like, oh, my dad seems really agitated, activated by something. What, what, 
you know, I didn't understand, didn't really understand. But then, of course, my father, father must be right in some way when you're small. So, oh, okay, there's something weird going on there. He used to get very upset when Martina Navratilova <laughs> played tennis, right? He would, he would get very upset. Basically, he was upset that she was a lesbian, which I didn't understand at the time. She's disgusting. She looks like a man. So, like, oh, okay. It seemed like it must be true. There must be something wrong with her, right? It's only much later that I'm oh, okay, that's just my dad's homophobia. And same when uh, effeminate men would be uh, on the TV. He'd get very up agitated. He'd say, he looks like a puff. Or, he, or he's a puff. Oh, obviously, obviously something, something wrong there. Right? Not, and what I'm picking up is not what he said. I didn't really understand what he was saying. But what I pick up is his discomfort, his agitation, his aggression. And so it's just an example of how we kind of internalize those things. And then I grew up in a milieu where I, kn I knew plenty of gay people, and I and I had, it was nothing. I had no sense of outer homophobia because I kind of get to know people, and then I my friends, and I care about them, etc. But long after that, I realized I still had a lot of inner homophobia. In other words, the sense of what if what if I was to be gay. What if I was to be attracted? Oh, that would be something wrong, somehow. Uh, what? And then that was shocking for me. And then well, why would it be wrong? How come it would be wrong? And then, oh, there's my dad shouting at the TV. That's why it was wrong. I just picked up that layer of conditioning from him. With some sense of wrongness that, that just becomes some view. It wouldn't be okay for me to be attracted to, you know, anyone other than a, a woman. Because if I was, somehow there's, there's suddenly this kind of aggressive, reactive, rejecting thing that I could feel and pick up from in my childhood that's sort of inside of me. So that's, you know, the view wasn't, wasn't my dad telling me there's something wrong. It somehow was just the way I picked it up, internalized it, and then it became a very a subtle view and one sees that a lot around various forms of, of prejudice. Right? It doesn't seem I wouldn't have said I was homophobic at all. But then I started to discover, oh, but there's a layer where I still am. A lot of prejudice plays out like that, right? Because we don't, the view is unconscious. A lot of, most racism plays out like that. Right? Of course, there's that kind of uh, explicit, aggressive, uh, hard, uh, you know, very overt end of racism. But most racism is played out by people like us, right? who would say we're not racist at all. And yet, somehow, we notice a strange name on a job application, and, and somehow the name doesn't compute, and something's unfamiliar, and the unfamiliarity of it, you know, causes us to behave slightly different. And there's a way in which these much more subtle views get reinforced, get reinforced culturally. In all kinds of different ways. The, the media portrayals of, of you know, people um, 
you know, linked, the media portrayals, the way people get linked to their particular ethnicity, linked to their particular religion. And as you know, we're a pretty white crew here, right? So we don't, we don't experience that. White people just don't experience being kind of made into a representation of their ethnicity. There's a very nice quote by Muhammad Ali, and somebody asked him after the uh, 9-11 bombing, someone's asked Muhammad Ali, how does it feel to share your religion with Osama bin Laden, this man who was responsible for killing thousands of people in New York? And Muhammad Ali responded, well, how does it feel to share your religion with Hitler, who killed all those millions of people? Oh. No, that's a very, there's a, that example of the why, the equation of Muslim with a certain whole thing to do with Muslim, brown skin, terrorism. You see that playing out in airports constantly, you know, airport security. You see that playing out at, on the Paris metro constantly. You may see that playing out in your own mind, right? Often. You see somebody in hijab, or you see somebody in their galabea, or you see somebody, uh, or you pass by a mosque, and some viewer, some conditioned viewer rises. And it may be, you know, it's understandable that the, the viewer rises. It's just, you know, the view's been reinforced in all kinds of ways. It's actually not problematic necessarily that the viewer rises. It's actually, I would say, it's very important that we recognize the viewer rises. Because when you recognize the view, you can see it. Oh, wow, there I go. That's actually how we find a certain cultural humility around our own bias and around our own prejudice and around our own privilege and around the fact that, oh, views can be really pernicious. Views can just get, can get hold of our minds in... in, in unhelpful ways, in blind ways. It's when you don't notice it as a view arising that it's a problem because then one tends to think it has some order of truth to it. The fact that views arise isn't a problem. We can't stop views arising. It's the hardening around the views, right? the clinging to the views, the fixating on the views. The more you reinforce, harden around, fixate on a, on a view, the more you identify with a view, the more you believe in the view. And then you get the, you know, the, the hardened edge of prejudice, racism, homophobia, etc. And... On the one hand, we can see all kinds of progr societal progression in terms of in terms of uh, the social protections for for different people and various identities, and at the same time, we seem to be in a moment of a certain kind of hardening of of views. Polarizing of views, the whole Trumpian dystopia that we're living in, you know, which is worsening, you know, constantly. You have the great privilege of not being engaged with it for a couple of weeks, 
the polarization around you know, Brexit, that increased polarization, and whatever the contributory factors of that are. Go back to 9-11, and I remember listening to that speech of George Bush shortly before the American invasion of Afghanistan. He says, you're either with us or you're against us. That's the polarization of views. That's the hardening of views. There's no middle ground, no nuance. It's just, it's it's a nonsense one's either with or against there's plenty of other ways of holding the kind of the, the, the yeah the, the delicacy the, the complexity and I think you know the internet comments sections have contributed really to the hardening of views. You look, you read whatever, however much nuance there may be in a newspaper article online. As soon as you get below the line, all the nuance disappears. And it's just and this kind of hardening of views. And it's interesting, right? It's because it's anonymous in some way because you're not confronted with the living human that you're disagreeing with or arguing with or aggressively attacking it's it's much easier to just give to vent one's own you know one's own frustrations um, aggression etc so I don't know what all the causative or contributory factors of those are but but you know that that sense that we certainly seem to be in a, a cultural moment of a lot of hardening of views And then we just look, we come in closer just to our own views about ourselves, about others, about reality, ourselves about how things ought to be. You know, I was saying yesterday about my views about flip-flops. You know. And then it's just an example of, oh. I was also saying something yesterday about letting myself, you know, being busted by things. And letting ourselves be busted again and again for just how we get caught in views. So that actually there's the seeing of the view, the, the, the recognition of whatever tendency might be there to harden around it, to fixate on it, to reinforce it, and then oh, the capacity to just let it be a view. It's not true that one should leave one's flip-flops in a certain way. It's not true that there's a right way to leave flip-flops and a wrong way to leave flip-flops. But mind can very much can make that just as black and white, you know. So there I see, you know, it's easy for me to feel like, oh, this terrible George Bush with these for us or against us. But there I go with the flip-flops. You're either with me, leave <laughs> your flip-flops correctly, and then, oh, you know, when we when we see it, there's nothing, there's no, there's nothing out there in the world amidst the, you know, the hardening of views and this kind of not even proto-fascist movement that's happening in the states and and not only there as well, but in 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 Europe increasingly as well, and we uh, the how alarming and dismaying and painful it can be to look at some of the social and political and movements in the world and there's nothing out there that I can't find the same movement of in here 
of course, different scale, right? But, oh, I have a different relationship to George Bush when I see myself fixating on flip-flop placement. Right? When I'm willing to acknowledge, oh, there's the view, when I'm willing to make the connection. So, in some ways, you know, we're in this rarefied environment this week. Right? And we're not engaged in the stuff of the world in that way. And yet, actually, we're not removed from it at all. Because whether it's flip-flops or whether it's how much, you know, the view that arises when you see how much the person next to you, how much guacamole they, they take, <laughs> or whatever it might be. The tendency to manufacture indignation, righteousness, the tendency to, to create uh, some kind of demonization of another, however subtle it might be. Right? And again, it's not to make it wrong. It's not wrong. It's, it's what happens. And then when it happens, well, does it tend towards entanglement or does it tend towards liberation? Can it, does it tend towards friction or can it tend towards freeness? We actually see, oh, that, that's, that's what it is. That's the clinging to views. That's what the Buddha was talking about. That's that tendency to harden around such a common area of experience. So helpful for us to see, so important for us to see. Because if we don't see it, it's playing out unconsciously. And of course, we're, we're operating on another scale, another di- a way different level of moral sensitivity and care than, than some of those you know, aggressive movements playing out. Right? I'm, not, I'm not trying to make some kind of false equivalence. Very, very different in scale. But when we understand this, the way the, just the movement when we understand that the way the tendency to contract around a view can happen here, we kind of we 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 sense our solidarity actually with all beings, including you know, Bush or Trump or whatever these beings that are you know way way more caught up in views and all the dangerous outflows of that. There's also those moments as we attend to experience here in ways that are refining and relaxing. Maybe moments where we really see our experience uh, unfiltered by views, unmediated by views, where there is no narrative. And some of you have spoken about that, you know, maybe the sitting by the river. Or one's just sitting and listening to the wind and the leaves. Or one's sitting in meditation. Or one's lying in bed, awake. And a touch of life somehow is such that no view, it's somehow obvious in a moment, that no view can describe it, define it, make sense of it. And we taste a, a, a moment we taste life unmediated by views 
unfiltered by discursive mind. And of course, those, those moments are beautiful, powerful, mystical. Often there's a mystical dimension, right, to those moments where, oh, I don't reduce things to this and that, here and there. Before and after, I mean, time, space, differentiation can all collapse into that um, unmediated moment. Important, beautiful experiences. And yet, it's easy to draw a kind of conclusion from those experiences that, oh, that's what it would be like if I didn't cling to views, if there would be no views, and then I'd just be in the cosmic soup (laughs) all the time. But we need views. Those moments might open up, but they're that. They're moments. They're experiences. They may be just, justement, I was going to say, they may be expansive experiences, profound experiences, uh, insightful experiences. But the experience, you know, eventually one, of course, one will generate a view even about the experience. If you ever want to speak to anybody about it, you're going to have to have some kind of view. Oh, I was in my room and then this happened. It's a wonderful uh, verse in a song by Leonard Cohen called uh, Love Itself. uh, The light came from the window from the sun above and there inside my little room there plunged the rays of love. Um, in In streams of light I clearly saw the dust you seldom see out of which the nameless makes a name for one like me. And I was tumbled up with... The, no, no. Uh, what's the next line? In uh, uh, streams of light I clearly saw the dust you seldom see, out of which the nameless makes a name for one like me. All busy in the sunlight, the flecks did float and dance, and I was tumbled up with them in formless circumstance. And uh, and then... uh, Then... (laughs) Yeah, I I know, I've got it, I've got it, but I'll remember. And then... And then the, the light was... And then then the experience changes, I can't remember the line, and... And my room is just the same. Yeah, yeah. So there's one line I can't remember. The experience says, then the room was just the same. But there was nothing left between the nameless and the name. I don't feel I really did that justice. But maybe I'll play it for you one evening. (laughs) Then I came back from where I'd been. My room was just the same, but there was nothing left between the nameless and the name. I'll have to... to (laughs) I can't remember. (laughs) So this this song, this story, in the room, tumbled up in formless circumstance, losing view, losing self-consciousness, tumbled up with the dust and the sunlight. And then I came back from where I'd been. My room was just the same. And then, 
I'm trying to tell that experience, making it into a song. And of course, poetry is evocative. Poetry points us beyond the the, the ordinary and the, the 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 you know the prosaic. It points to the mystical, and yet it still has to come back. Oh, there's a man in a room having an experience. So important those moments where we see through the veil of views, where we see beyond views, where we see experience doesn't need to be and can't fundamentally be defined by view, contained by a view, reduced to a view. But important also not to come up with the view that that's what a deep experience ought to be like or that that somehow is the destination of this kind of practice. Because then what's also pointed to is emptiness of views. Seeing through the, uh, so that our views can be transparent to us. You know, we, there's different kinds of emptiness of view. One is just seeing the perce- that our perception is just that. Right? The view that we come up with is, is just seen from our particular angle. I read a, an interview with... Uh, I saw an interview with Paul Newman a while ago, you know, the American actor, and the interviewer was asking him about his long and faithful and stable marriage, which was an unusual thing in Hollywood. He says, well, how come you've had this long and stable and loving relationship and no kind of scandal of infidelity has ever been attached to your name, etc.? His answer was, if you've got steak at home, why would you go out for hamburgers? <laughs> if you've got steak at home, why go out for hamburger? So, what do you think when you hear that? One might think, oh, sweet, this man is kind of, you know, he's seeing his wife as, as some, uh, in a sense of as, as a gourmet, as kind of wonderful luxury. And then, you know, he doesn't want, sees that he doesn't want to go out for the kind of romantic equivalent of fast food, something kind of rich, flavor-boosted, but leaves you feeling a bit, uh, you know, queasy afterwards. Old-fashioned, romantic, sweet. Or one might think, this terrible misogynist man comparing his women to pieces of meat that is why something like a lump of meat kept at home right and then other women are just compared to be like consumable like fast food uh, to be you know just uh, taken for one's gratification and then throw the wrapper in the bin so which is right what kind of a man is Paul Newman I know we, or does, you know, we don't know. We don't know what kind of a man Paul Newman is. Right? But we could get very caught up. That's what all those below-the-line stuff does on the internet, right? It gets very caught up in the exchange of strong views. It's like, you know, it's like that. Or we can say, oh... Often we learn, we can learn much more about our own perception, our own view, about the, the the lenses we're looking through, than about the thing that we're so sure we have a clear view on. And so we're invited to really familiarise ourselves 
with the the view, the production, opinion production, belief productions that are happening all the time. So that we don't um, believe that they're telling us the truth about ourselves or about others or about reality. So that we can see the view is just a view. And yet, you know, at the same time, we can see through, we can see the transparency, and yet we can still make use. Some views are better than others. Some views are more useful than others. Some views are more compassionate than others. Some views are wiser than others. Some views are more inclusive than others. Some views tend towards care, kindness, inclusivity, love, wisdom, understanding. Some views tend towards bigotry, prejudice, hatred, demonization. It's one of the other sort of current, I think it's hopefully dying out a little bit now, but um, one of the sort of movements is very kind of postmodern movement, and the French philosophers are mostly to blame. Right? Derrida and Foucault, particularly. Are you familiar with Derrida and Foucault? This kind of con deconstructionist, relativist kind of strand of philosophy that has grown up in the last. 40, 50 years, you know, the sense that, oh, everything's just relative, nothing's really true. And as we end up with this sort of flat view as if, or, you know, there's a, there's a certain kind of insight about the emptiness of views, but it goes too extreme. Right? It goes from being t invested in the view to being dismissive of views totally. Oh, all views are the same. Right? Everybody's view is equally valid. One sees that playing out in popular culture. Right? Everybody's view needs to be respected. No, it doesn't. Some views are terrible. Some views are primitive. Some views are, are uh, aggressive, etc., etc. People get, might be stuck in their view. The people might need to be accepted in some way. The view doesn't. We all start with very primitive view. I mean, just our own psychological development, right? We start off with a completely egocentric view. Well, we start off with a completely so no view at all, right? No, no, no conceptual apparatus when we're born. We've no language. We've got no, uh, yeah, no conceptual apparatus. And then we start to develop one. And the first thing we understand is mother, right? Other. It's not just a diffuse world. There's actually a sense that I'm here and mum is there. And of course, it could develop different ways depending on our circumstances. But, we, but basically, if you see two-year-olds, right, completely egocentric. That's right? why then they start, you know, no. You know, no is the great establishment of the will of a two-year-old. It's like, oh, wow, I've got agency and power and I can say no. And then you invite the two-year-old to share their toys. I think, no way! I know, it's mine! And then if you take it off, they like freak out. No capacity until about seven to really put themselves in the, in the place of another. It's a very sophisticated development to consider other people's views, feelings, etc. And then you slowly go from egocentric to kind of 
identifying with certain people, usually family first, right? my group, and that develops in different ways. And this is a childhood development, but it's also development in the wider sense that goes on throughout our lives. And that not, not everybody gets very far. Right? Not everybody gets very far with their moral development. Some people don't really get beyond egocentric. Right? Trump, for example, seems to be a good example. Poor love, he just, you know, no empathy. Somebody who was at the, on the, a jurist from the Nuremberg trials wrote that having watched these, the Nuremberg trials play out and these horrific accounts of how you know, appallingly people had been, behaved and all the suffering it had caused and, the, and then seeing the people being on trial, and they wrote that it seemed like the closest they could get to their definition of evil was the people who are, seem incapable of empathy. Right? Pathological narcissism. Only, only hasn't really, for whatever disruption in one's own development, hasn't really got beyond egocentric. All I can really be concerned about is me. My needs, my success, me getting what I want, etc., etc. Most people, thank God, get beyond egocentric to at least some identify with a, my group, my family, my religion, my nation. Right? And then you get to from egocentric to ethnic-centric. So it's us. But there's a, you know, where there's an us, there's a them. And you see that playing out, you know, and in all of this political mess as well. The ethnocentric, we're, you know, in our interests and fuck their interests, basically. And some of us, you know, a lot of people really, that's as far as ethnocentric is, is, I wouldn't want to hazard a guess at the percentages, but a lot of people don't get beyond ethnocentric, really. But then there's that growth to a world-centric view. It's interesting, you know that image we have when you say the, think of the world, and you see the, the, that blue-green ball planet, the world. That photograph was taken in 1961, right, when the first people went up to space. Uh, and it's so much, it's so obvious to other world. We say the world, and we see that planet. We, even when we say world-centric, we think of a kind of planetary sense of all of us. All of us. But that photograph's only been around 50-something years. And people did have globes before. Right? So some sense of the, the world as the planet has been around for some time. But not that time in terms of the evolution of history. For many people, the world was about you know 50 kilometers probably in radius. And the world ran out you know, beyond the next village. And the next village already were, you know, that lot. I mean, you see that in Kubshak. Well, still, people from Le Change, that's six kilometers away, they're outsiders. Right? And if you lived in anywhere very rural, like this, like around here, you can see that sense of, you know, the, even the, the you know, ethnocentric Le Kubjakois. Right, really, you see that around football, etc. You know, us, our team. But then, you know, we a lot, a lot of people, and that's where something like the internet helps. I think you know, we actually expand to world-centric, in the sense of all of us.
It's also partial. It's a way, it's a view that tends towards, it's a more important view, it's a healthier view, it's a wiser view, it's a more inclusive view. And still limited view. Go to what Ken Ken Wilber calls cosmocentric. Cosmocentric. And there can be cosmocentric with a C, suggesting... uh, all of space, all of space, or cosmocentric with a K, which includes the kind of uh, psychic realm, the mind realm, as well as the spatial realm, like all of this. It's still a view, but when the view is vast, 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 it starts to, inevitably, everyday mind can't hold a great deal of vastness. So when we let the view go to the vast, the view tends to thin out into a more direct experience. And we can watch our experience, all of us, we can watch it go in those different ways. If we, if we know a world-centric view or a cosmocentric view, if we have that sense of belonging to, being part of, or actually being the entire universe, it doesn't mean we leave the other views behind. We can still watch ourselves get caught in a moment of egocentric view. Is there going to be enough guacamole left for me? In theory, I care about all of you. In theory, I would like you all to have guacamole. But mostly, I want guacamole. Or whatever it is. Just in that moment, we can see that our our worldview shrink to just my concern. And again, it's important that that we see that. We kind of we get to forgive us, us, forgive ourselves our trespasses, forgive ourselves our ex- egocentricity, and because in doing so, then we hold it more lightly, and then we see our ethnocentricity. Well, if you're a football fan, it's a good place to see your ethnocentricity, right? Or whatever it may, might be that it constellates around my gr- my group. <coughs> And then we can see, actually, our universal concern, our world-centrism. And then we can touch into the way, look at the night sky, and kind of touch into the, the, that mysterious feeling of belonging to the whole of life, being the whole of life. So, our views can cover a lot of ground, you know, from flip-flops to the cosmos, from uh, uh, the way our own prejudice or blindness or mean-spiritedness arises as a view, to the way our kind of wide-open heart of care and compassion and the wish to serve all beings arises. Um, as I say, we don't really go from one to another. We, ju- we kind of expand and include, expand and include. So, my encouragement would be, you know, these days, just to attend to views. And the more rub there is when there's a view, the more indignant one is, or the more certain one is, or the more right one feels, all right? The, the clearer the sign is, oh, there's, the, the, there's some hardening around the view. There's some clinging to the view. 
And, you know, circumstances here are broadly supportive. Most of the time, it probably feels like an environment of care. And, and yet, no doubt, there's moments where we find ourselves you know, busted by our own views, busted by indignation or righteousness or objection to something. So stay tuned. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.